still haven't closed a deal yet in your real estate business? Then you have found the right place. This is the Fearless Millionaire Podcast, where you can gain clarity, confidence, cash flow, and build your business the right way from the inside out. Here's your fearless leader, Nathan Amaral. Welcome back. This is the number one place for real estate investors to gain more clarity, confidence, and cash flow. I should probably add a little ching ching, little sound like that <laughs> every time I say the word cash flow. Oh man, so many great things are happening uh, and so many bad things are happening all at the same time. I mean, we got a lot of stuff taking place all around the world with COVID everywhere. Uh, I just found out yesterday, I was pulled over on the side of the road by this gentleman. He kind of like pulls me over because I didn't have a face mask on. So he pulls me over and he starts speaking Portuguese and he's basically telling me to go get a face mask. You know, it's the right thing to do. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's mandatory, you know? So I, I walked over to a pharmacy and I had to pay like 10 euros for a face mask. I'm like, what? I mean, it's a piece of paper. But you know, if it's if you don't do it, the police are gonna come at you, and then you gotta you gotta do it, man. It's just it's just really weird times. So I got it. It's a reusable mask, and and you gotta use it anytime you're in public. And uh, I did get to shoot a few videos over at the Tower Project with it on. So uh, that was pretty pretty interesting. But uh, yeah, anyway, these are really interesting times. But also, these are really rewarding times for a lot of people as well. I mean, there's some industries that are exploding with growth, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people who find themselves at home without a job, being fired, laid off, furloughed, whatever whatever situation. But this is also a lot of time for reflection. A lot of time for reflection right now. Obviously, people have more time on their hands than ever before. And there's a lot of people looking for solutions. I mean, Netflix has gone up in usership and <laughs> than, than, than normal, right? YouTube, Netflix, and music apps have, are all just skyrocketing and, and a whole bunch more. So this is actually a great time to get more clarity in what direction you're going in. And I just want to say I'm so excited for all the people that are going through the Clear the Fog program. I want to tell you about that. And then we're going to dive in today's uh Today's actually this is a very a little bit longer podcast, um, so hang on. <laughs> um, but I do want to tell you that um, if you are searching for a solution, maybe you do find yourself at home in these weird times, um, and you're looking for some a solution to help you, uh, you know, gain clarity. Then I would encourage you to get over to our website, fearless-millionaire.com. On the top of the website, there's a little banner that says the, um, our 14-day challenge, Clear the Fog. And I would uh, get over to that because um, I recently updated a program uh, and gave it a new name called Clear the Fog, a 14-day challenge to complete clarity. And this basically walks you through step-by-step step with exercises and tasks to do about helping you really reflect on not only strategy of real estate business and what you should be doing, it really helps you to identify and get clear on yourself, not only just like simple things like strengths and weaknesses, but man, we, we go into deeper things like bad advice, your high income skill, and also how to expand your network and how to do that. There's a bunch of, and there's even bonus material in there and, and just dive in. Uh, go over to the website, and here's a little caveat thing, right? Because of because of COVID, you know, normally back then, I, when I was the first round, the version 1.0, I used to charge anywhere between five hundred dollars 
uh, to $1,000 on this kind of training material for a three-day session. I mean, this was a three-day uh, in the field, in my office. Uh, people would come to my office, would go through this for three days, for three hours every night. And it was transformational. It really was. Uh, and the results from, from that were, it was much more in-depth. So what I ended up doing was I consolidated it and put it in a membership site. And when you go on the website, you're going to see there's a video that plays there. And also when you get to um, the checkout portion, um, I actually allow you to pick your price. You can pick the price. Let's call it the COVID special uh, where you can pick the price of the program. We have a suggested price of a dollar per day. It's a 14 days, right? Or you can choose whatever amount you want. You know, it's entirely up to you. I'm just so happy and successful. We do have to get around to posting um, some more of the testimonials. Testimonials are coming in every day of people who are so happy and excited and, and, and amazed at the results they're getting from this program. And so if that's you, if you feel lost or you need more clarity and you want to build up on more confidence, I highly encourage you to get over to our website, fearless-millionaire.com. And on the top of the page, there's a 14-day challenge tab. You just click that and it'll take you to that page. And uh, you can watch the short video, understand what it's about, come along with us uh, and, and join the community. There's actually a community in there. You can ask questions, get uh, comments and feedback. It's, it's, really, it's really awesome. And that's just because I'm saying it. What I like, think it's awesome about it is the results that people People are getting from it. That's what's really exciting to me. I love waking up every morning, reading the comments and answering our community members. That's the coolest part. Now that I've given you that shameless plug, I want to give you a little overview about today's episode. Today's episode is really special to me because it's with my two good friends, Seth Williams and Jaron Barnes. Uh, Seth Williams has been investing in real estate for a number of years. I actually had him on our podcast some time ago. I don't know the number of the podcast, but if you search Seth Williams or you look through our podcast, you'll find him. It was actually earlier in 2019. And uh, we've been good friends for a number of years. Oh, we're constantly chatting and helping each other in the business. Um, but then Seth asked me to be on his podcast in his community and the website is retipster retipster.com. You can learn more about real estate investing, investing in land strategy, mostly land is what he is what he focuses on and how to do that business. But one of the commonalities that we have in place between him and I is doing the business from anywhere. That's the best part about how uh, we do business. So I am going to hit the play button here and I want you to listen in on the interview. Now, this is a rather long one. It's about an hour and a half. Um, or at least close to an hour, uh, listen to it and, um, and enjoy it. And by the way, if you have any questions or you like what you hear, just let us know. You can, you know where to get us. Just look us up on either social media. Um, you can, best way to do it is get over to our YouTube. Um, that's where we've been spending a lot more time recently. We're providing content, literally almost daily trainings uh, to help real estate investors. You can get over to our YouTube channel, subscribe, and also leave any questions you have in any of the videos. We'll, we'll help you out. All right. So either me or Aubrey will we'll get to you and uh, we'll help you out to help you improve your real estate business, to help you gain what? Gain what? More clarity, confidence, and cash flow. All right, here's the episode. From retipster.com, this is the RE Tipster Podcast. Hey there, tipsters. This is Seth and Jaron with the RE Tipster Podcast, and today we're talking with Nathan Amaral. So Nathan is a real estate investor, podcaster, educator, coach, and a lot more. And I met Nathan several years ago now, and we've stayed connected over the years. And what I find really intriguing about Nathan is that he primarily invests in countries outside of the United States, namely Portugal and Uganda, of all places. 
So we wanted to get Nathan on the show to learn about what other real estate opportunities are there outside of the U.S.? Like how are deals found and how does financing work? And if we were to get out of this comfortable bubble we have in the U.S., what does that look like? I Just personally, I, I know very little about how the outside world works once you leave this country. And I don't know anybody who has done anything in Africa outside of maybe South Africa. So I'm sure we're going to discover a lot of new interesting things here. With that, Nathan, how you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks, guys, for having me here. I do have a small cough. I was recovering from a, a cold, but everybody thinks it's like, oh, do you have coronavirus? Yeah. <laughs> <Don't care laughs> that. Watch out. <laughs> but I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You know, we're, we're in you know this lockdown period here. We're only supposed to leave our homes for the supermarket and stuff. But, you know, I have three kids. So working from home is a little like stressing. You know, uh, you know, with them running around all the time. So I'm actually here at one of one of my short term rentals, which is empty, <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah, that's where that's where my uh, office is during this time. Yeah, and you are in Portugal right now, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. in Portugal. Uh, it's actually just off the coast of Portugal. It's these nine islands of the Azores. It's the Hawaii of Europe, right? Yeah. It's the Hawaii volcanic islands. Yeah. And just some uh, trivia information for our listeners there. My mom was adopted by a woman from the Azores. So I grew up calling my grandmother Vovo. <laughs> that is so crazy. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Small world. So do you speak Portuguese, Jaren? No. I know like one word, Vovo. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm assuming, do you speak Portuguese, Nathan? I do. Yeah. I speak Portuguese. I understand it. I'm a citizen. I'm a Portuguese citizen. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And that's, that's actually one of the interesting things I want to dive into as we get further along is like, how important is it to actually speak the language in the place where you're buying and selling real estate? Yeah. That's, that's a great question. Yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. That kind of ties into much of the stuff we're going to do. But anyway, just to kick this off, why Portugal and Uganda? Of all places in the world, maybe you can explain your backstory and help us understand how you landed in those two countries. Sure. Okay. Well, I'll kick it off with Portugal because one, yeah, it is my heritage, and you know, my my parents immigrated to the United States. My most of my family immigrated to the United States and Massachusetts. Uh, but every year we would come to the island of São Miguel in the Azores, and uh, sometimes even twice a year. So at a very young age, I was emotionally deeply rooted here, going into the fields with the cows and stopping on Sundays for picnics in the, in the, in the farmlands and stuff like that. And a beautiful scenery here. It's just absolutely gorgeous. So that over the years just stayed with me. And then when I left the United States in 2013 and I moved to Uganda and as I was raising a family there, it was kind of like, okay, where's the middle, where's the middle ground for me to reconnect with my family? Cause my family did go to Uganda for my wedding, but we needed a middle meeting ground. And so it just works out that right here is in the middle of uh, the world. So, you know, we meet here on the island uh, in Portugal. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you've got an interesting story about how you got connected with Uganda, right? Maybe yeah. You can, uh, I was yeah. about to say, man, you can't, <laughs> we can't brush can't over that. that story out. Come on. <laughs> All right. So I'll give you, I'll give you the quick version because, you know, we're talking like 18 years in the making, but about 18 years ago, my dad, God bless him, he's a big believer when you give, you shall receive. He was a believer in the law of reciprocity at 14 years old. I was a paper boy at the time. Have you guys ever been a paper boy, a paper carrier? Three and a half years right here. I've never done it. Never done it? I was a bum, man, growing up. I didn't no, do anything. No. I didn't get a real job until I was like <laughs> married. Like legitimately. Like I, The only job I worked until 
after getting married, I, I was short term, part time at Wendy's and I lasted a month. I was a complete bum until uh, I actually had to pay bills. No, nah, it's okay. It's I was okay. a late bloomer. <laughs> well, one of the things that my dad taught me at a very young age was giving you shall receive. We went to this local church and there was this group, this choir that came uh, to the church. They were called the African Children's Choir. They're still in existence. They've been on Oprah. Will Smith supports them and all this stuff. Well, after they're done singing their songs at the back table, there was no home study courses there to buy. (laughs) At the back table, they had a whole table full of children's pictures and you could sponsor a child. So my dad said, well, listen, this is what you're going to do. You're going to pay me $40 and I'm going to use my card, my credit card, and uh, you're going to pay me $40 every month on my card. And uh, I was like, what? You know, like I wasn't too happy about this. But anyway, he said, pick a child. So I'm literally looking there at all these kids. And honestly, guys, guys, I looked probably for the cutest girl on the table. That's what I did, right? You know, just like a 14-year-old boy, right? So I picked a child and we became pen pals. We wrote letters back and forth for a number of years. Just, you know, small talk, house school and stuff like that. Well, when my pen pal, uh, the girl I chose on, on on the table that day, she turned 18. Years go by, she turns 18. Three letters come back in the mail to me from the organization. And uh, I called them up. I'm like, hey, you know, I got some letters back. And they're like, oh, yeah, your your sponsor child has uh, graduated. They're done. And I'm like, well, can I have her phone number, her address? Like, oh, no, for privacy reasons. We're not allowed to do that. So we literally got disconnected for a number of years. This was before social media, guys. So years go by and Facebook comes out. And she was actually searching for me on Facebook. She actually had this burning desire to thank me after all these years of helping cover school fees and stuff like that. So she was looking me up on Nathan Amaral. There's a bunch of Nathan Amarals in Brazil, like huge population. So she kept asking all these other Nathans. Finally, one day she gets me. And the interesting thing, guys, listen to this. Her name that I knew her by for privacy reasons was different than the one she was using. Oh, really? on. Yeah, yeah. Her, her basically, they call it a Christian name was the one I was associated with. And then her name on her Facebook was her real name, her Uganda name. So when this name comes up and it's like, oh, did you sponsor a girl? I get a message. Did you sponsor a girl in Uganda? And I'm like, yes. Like, where is she? How do you know? I'm like, you know, she's like, Nathan, it's me. What? And I was like, holy That's smokes. crazy, like, man. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. That was 2012. We had our first phone conversation, first video chat, all in a matter of a few months. And then in 2013, I decided to fly out there. Um, I I took a six-month sabbatical, went there. But guys, you guys are both married, right? So when I hugged my sponsored child friend at the airport, I like instantly knew that like, this is your wife. Like I just had this instant, this is it. I was like, whoa, wait a second. Like I didn't say that right away, guys, but... So, you know, the week goes by, I'm meeting her family, her friends and all this stuff. And I just fell in love with the culture and the people and her family and her. And on the day before I left, I snuck away from her because we were together the whole time. Couldn't get away from this girl. We were just together. You know, she was my she was my tour guide and my friend, you know. So on the, the day before I left, she went to go get her hair done and all this stuff. And I snuck away and I went to go buy her a ring. I met her in the Sheraton. There was a Sheraton Hotel Gardens. And while I was there, I was basically telling her, I said, listen, if I leave this country, 
and I go back to the U.S., we're probably not going to see each other either ever again or many years from now when we have kids and families. And I said, I know how I am. If I don't commit to something right away, I am just going to move on. And I said, I don't want to do that without making a commitment today. So right there, I got on one knee, pulled out a ring, asked her to marry me. And luckily she said, yes. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Man. That's yeah. cr- I wonder how many times that has happened in the history of sponsored children where like the sponsor <laughs> ends up marrying the child. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, does, does that happen often? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it almost seems like something they could make a movie out of, you know, like it's, it's one of those stories. That's just so. When I shared it with my wife, that's exactly what she said. She legit started tearing up and she was like, that's like a movie. <laughs> yeah. And we, I hear that all the time. I'm actually in talks right now with a famous actress that I pinned on uh, Instagram. I don't know how to make a movie like that, but it's, I'm trying to do it. Because so many people have told me this should be a book or a movie. And I'm like, well, why would that, you know, this is my per- personal private life. And then I thought about it. You know, I said, you know what? If I bring awareness to the what I did 18 years ago, it could be a motivating for other people to, you know, give in return to help other kids that need sponsorships for school. So, yeah, that, that is actually pretty mind blowing. There was a a child in Guatemala that I sponsored through Compassion International like back in like 2003, I think is when I started. You know, he got all the way through the system and he graduated and he found me on Facebook. It was crazy. I didn't end up marrying him, but <laughs> it was, uh, but, but like, it, it, it was, it was pretty crazy just to realize like, Man, this kid that I used to write letters to for so long. And we still don't speak the same language. Like we rely a hundred percent on Facebook's horrible translation service that they have. But it's sort of this moment when you realize like, wow, this is a real person. Like this is an actual life. And like, you sort of realize that all along, but when you see him outside of the context of writing letters through the organization, it's like, whoa, that's really cool. That's so cool, Seth. I didn't know that. That's awesome. That's awesome for you. Cool. So that is how you landed on Uganda, right? That's how I got to Uganda. Yeah. And I was there for a year. I went back to the US after those two weeks. We went back home. I literally sold everything I had. I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time, moved to Uganda. And then 30 days after that, we were married. A few months after that, we were pregnant. And uh, yeah, now I'm three kids later. Here I am. <laughs> so so like, would Uganda, in terms of like investing in real estate there, would that even enter your radar if you didn't have that connection there? No, it, it would never. Like, honestly, even my friends were shocked. Would Africa? Like, I was probably the guy <laughs> who would never go to Africa, right? And, and the funny thing is, even though a lot of my previous ex-girlfriends uh, were African American, I never would have thought of going to to Africa. So when I got there, I was just like, "Wow!" And then, guys, I did that. Uh, was that was that test ancestry or forever yeah, ancestry? Twenty three me, yeah, yeah, twenty three me. Yeah, I come to find out there was uh, a little bit of Congolese in my DNA, and I was like, "Oh, that's what." Yeah, that crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "What?" <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I can kind of see it when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So yeah, but uh, Uganda was never on my radar for real estate. It never was. I was actually really surprised at how much growth there was when I got there. And when I started looking around, I was, I'm still impressed today at how much growth there is in that country and so much land, so much undeveloped land. It's not funny. Is that one of those African countries that's like really good for farming? Actually, like I, yes, I've heard, I've heard Ethiopia yeah. is like that. Like it's like prime farmland. 
It, yeah, because it's on the equator, the temperature is always – it doesn't get colder than 65. Okay, 60 maybe. That's a really cold, rainy day. But it's usually 65, and it doesn't get hotter than 85. So it always has this warm climate. It's really nice. So we kind of get the context of the countries then. So in terms of real estate, just as a real estate investor, like what was your foray into that? How did you decide at what point in your life, hey, real estate, and that's going to be the thing? Yeah. So just rewind like 13, you know, maybe 13, 15 years ago, I started my hunt for real estate investing, right? The knowledge hunt and learning a bunch of seminars, two years of learning and doing nothing until I hired a coach, kicked me in the butt, but it was the best thing I ever needed. And yeah, it cost me a lot of money, but that money turned into a lifestyle, right? So the reality is um, I started off wholesaling single family houses, right? In my few states that I was in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and that area, did that for two years. My coach told me, do this strategy for two years and don't do anything else because there's a lot of other strategies out there. So I did that for two years, did really well. I was doing four to five deals a month, um, a lot of motivated sellers at the time during that market. And after that, I got into apartment uh, investing. I got hired by David Lindahl. Uh, some people know him yeah, you know, in the apartment space. You know him? Yeah. So he's actually having kids himself now. He's raising a family, so he's not on the road so much. He, he actually hired me and uh, I worked in his office for three years. Well, half the time I was working in his office, like building out a sales team and whatnot. And then the other half of the time, I traveled around the country with him. As he would be speaking, I was his assistant. And th- I, I just learned so much during while I was there. I learned about apartments. I learned like a lot of the stuff I had learned previously was all single family strategies. Then going into the apartments, I started investing in apartments. I started expanding that portfolio and syndicating deals. And then from there, the first time I actually started getting into, let's say, uh, virtual investing was when I moved from Massachusetts to North Carolina. A buddy of mine over there was doing a whole bunch of business and he was already doing it. And, and so I kind of adapted to that because it was very new to me. Started buying real estate remotely, you know, in, in maybe the first one was like an hour and a half away, then it was three hours, and then it was the next state, that kind of thing. Um, so I started flipping houses and then buying houses, owner financed, creating owner finance opportunities for other people. I'd buy all cash, turn those into owner finance opportunities. But I'll tell you what, Seth, when, when I started doing that uh, virtual real estate investing, that's when I knew I could live the laptop lifestyle. You know, I could be anywhere and it, just a phone and a laptop and you're good to go. So that's what really got me into that thing. That's why it was a little easier for me to transition after five, six years of doing virtual real estate. It was easy to, for me to transition to whether I was living in Uganda or Portugal. It was like, oh, I'm already doing this. It's no problem. So how did you go from investing in the States virtually to Portugal? What are you doing now? I'm assuming that when you were, you were flipping houses, you're not probably flipping houses now, right? No, not not too often. Right now, flipping houses, it's a very saturated, very competitive market, lower margins. Um, I haven't flipped a house in probably a year and a half. And that's just because of different strategies I've been doing. Um, I have been doing a lot more owner finance properties, been flipping some land, but mostly owner financing properties has been a primary for a number of years. But what about your short-term rentals? Because like right now you're, I'm assuming you do Airbnb quite a bit in Portugal, right? Yeah. So the short-term rentals started out just again by building a, a base here in the Azores in Portugal. And that was, that was like, okay, well, how can I have investment property even though I'm not here primarily? 
but yet still generate some income. So the whole short-term rental market was there because this is a tourism area. Portugal and these islands, 80% of their income comes from tourism. Okay. That's really important here. So that started picking up. It was very easy to do that. But um, a lot of people ask me, well, Nathan, how do you do short-term rentals in Portugal and in Uganda, by the way? I'll tell you that in a second. And I do short-term rentals in Uganda. How do you do that by traveling everywhere? Who's checking your people in? Who's, you know, what's happening? Who's managing your properties? And that's very simple. A property management company I found through connections and networking found some uh, a good property management company here. They manage about 45 properties all over the island. And that wasn't the first choice, by the way. Uh, the first time it was like, oh, this woman who was a cleaner and you know she was checking people in and out and that was okay. But we eventually transitioned into a company uh, who had much more uh, experience. So that that's where it's been since now. So dive into how it works. We want to dive into both markets because they're both kind of different, but they're both outside the United States, right? But in Portugal, let's go granular a little bit and okay. dive into how do you find deals? How do you get financing for deals? What is the attitude towards short-term rentals? Because out here, depending on where you're at, you might have to fight a little bit with the the lenders or the local municipalities to to be able to do short-term rentals. So like, what does right. the lay of the land look like uh, in Portugal? Sure. And that was a transition, by the way. Every country is going to be a little different when it comes to investing there. So starting with Portugal, you have to get experience with first the laws, what's available. For example, here, there's regulation in Europe. You have to have a fire extinguisher. You have to have placards that show where the exit is. You have to have, what do they call those? A fire mat that goes over the stove. You have to have certain railings. So you have certain things. Also, you have to have a little plaque outside on the street or outside of the residence that says uh, local apartment or apartment local. That's uh, You have to go pay a tax for that. You have to go pay a fee, have it registered. So that's a little different compared to the United States Airbnb system, and, and or especially even Uganda. That's a little different as well. But here, that's a little different. When it comes to finding properties... It's, it is kind of similar. For example, not many people know this, but Remax is here. Century 21 is here. They have a presence here. You know, you can easily access the MLS per se uh, and data very easily through the government website and through their brokers. Okay. One of the sort of uh, related questions to that. So given that there is an MLS system or something like that in Portugal, uh, that makes me wonder just about access to owner information and that kind of thing. Like is direct mail something you can do in Portugal? Like, can you get property ownership data and send out mailers or does it, does it not work like that in Portugal? I'd say this, Seth, what matters most about investing in different countries most importantly is culture. It's not about, I guess like there is direct mail here, but if someone got a letter in the mail about it, it's probably not going to be so accepted. Just like for example, in Uganda, where there's like literally no direct mail at all. So how would you run a direct mail campaign? It's really about culture. You have to know what the culture is used to, what they're comfortable with and what they accept. Here, primarily, the best way to get deals is through bankruptcies, like foreclosures, REOs. I'll give you, I'll tell you a little, uh, you know, some interesting parts uh, about investing here in Portugal. There's a lot of incentives. There's a lot of incentives and banks are very flexible with lending. You know, as long as you have a job, very similar to the United States, you have a job, you have decent income, you can actually go to the bank. You can get a foreclosed property. You can get it with no money down. They will actually give you 
any money for uh, rehab, like if you needed to fix it up, they'll give you the cash for that and they'll put it on a 40-year note. Is that if you're a Portuguese citizen or like, could somebody like a foreigner like myself do that? Okay, so there, there is a little difference uh, if that's for a Portuguese citizen. By the way, also, I, I want to mention the rates, Seth. The rates are typically under 2%. Normally, like my buddy has a mortgage. Yeah, uh, most of my friends who are here and uh, family members, they have rates of 1.5%. Gosh, that's crazy. It's like basically free, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now listen, here's the advantage with foreigners, okay? And, uh, and, and by the way, I'm speaking from my own experience, but also Berkshire Hathaway talks a lot about Portugal as being like a destination, but also it, it advantages for investors. Number one is the golden visa. Have you guys ever heard of the golden visa? The golden visa is, a, is a, an investment scheme that Portugal came up with where it gets investors to invest in Portugal and they can get a visa which will last like five years. And then they can go for their citizenship almost like instantly. Other countries, like for example, the United States, it takes like 10 years. There's a lot of different barriers for different countries. Well, Portugal has a very unique system with this golden visa, which uh, it would take 350,000 euros in some deals, right? They have different levels, but the lowest one is 350,000 euros. You could buy a property that as long as it's older than 30 years, and that uh, needs rehab and it needs to be revitalized. All you need is to invest a minimum of 350000 There's other ones in between. The highest and easiest one is if you take a million euros, wire it to a, any Portuguese bank and leave it there <laughs> for no set amount of time, you automatically get the golden visa. So there are different advantages to that kind of program uh, and, and the different ones that, that fall under. But there's also some huge tax benefits to Portugal. Uh, one, there's the non-habitual tax regime. There's also no inheritance tax. You guys are familiar, you know, with uh, yeah, what do they call that? Deal. Yeah, yeah. Then also, there's no, um, there's no what they call that in the U.S. It's it's called they call it the the wealth tax. When when someone dies of a certain amount of net worth, do they get taxed on their? Uh, you know, there's no tax on, on if one of your family members dies inheritance. You don't get taxed on that. None of that. It's not capital gains. Actually, here's the difference. There's no capital gains tax here. Get this. When you buy a property, the person who's buying has to pay the tax up front. Like a sales tax almost? There's a sales tax and there's this, you have to pay all of the property tax up front. Is there, is there no recurring annual property tax? There's just one? There is, but it's an additional, it's an additional lump tax. I'm going to give it, a, there's different words for it, but um, it's an additional lump sum of money. It's a percentage, usually point. 0.8% of the purchase price that you have to pay at closing. You actually have to go pay the tax before you go to the bank. The taxes must be paid before you close. Is that like a transfer tax? Sort of? It's not a transfer tax. You know, Portugal has quite a few unique taxes. It is a socialistic government. So, for example, you know, healthcare, schools, all that's free. There's a lot of advantages if you lose your job, right? So, Again, lower rates on mortgages and whatnot. So the downside of that, guys, guys like us, the entrepreneurism drive is not there so much, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? It's kind of like, it, first of all, if you start a business, you have to have money. You have to have some good money or you have to know someone who has money, right? As a partner. Other than that, it's kind of like everybody, every, no one's like rushing to go start a business like the US or in Uganda. Like people love starting businesses in Uganda. So that's, those are some of the pros and cons there. So with those uh, financing stuff you were mentioning earlier, like the 2% interest and 40 year term and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So 
can a foreigner like me get that? Or I cannot get that because I'm what's to keep me from just saying, hey, I'll go put a million dollars into Portugal, but I'm going to borrow all of it from Portugal at a low interest rate. Is that not something I can do? (laughs) You can. The only thing is whenever you invest outside of, you know, the United States or in a different country, you have to do it in an entity. If if you are not a citizen of that country, you have to do it in in a company. Okay, so preliminary, you have to set up a company, an entity typically what they call an LDA or limited company, right? You have to set those up first and then you can go and then you can get those rates in property and investments. Yeah. And and I'm just skimming the surface guys, but there's actually incentives where uh, it's all, let's call it a stimulus. Okay. If an investor does that set up a company, the government will actually fund your project sometimes up to as high as 70%. Like literally, they'll help you if you present the, the plan and the proposal. And I want to be clear, this is specifically for tourism. So if you said, hey, I want to invest in Portugal, I want to open up a hotel, I want to open up some bungalows, short-term rentals, whatever, whether you want to buy the, the property, whether you want to build it. I'll give you an example. A buddy of mine, he's, he's investing here. He's buying the land, building a building, and it's going to be bungalows. It's 12 bungalows. Okay. The government's going to pay for 60% of the project <laughs> just because that's what they offer. Right? Well, Seth, it sounds like we need to quit what we're doing and get <laughs> some stuff going on in Belize and Portugal. So that's yeah. where the goal is. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do the prices look like for properties in Portugal? I mean, maybe it's probably different in the Azores versus mainland Portugal, but. Right, exactly. Yeah, so if, if a lot of people know Lisbon uh, as you know the mainland and uh, the main city. Of course, things in any capital is going to be more expensive. Properties here are still relatively affordable or cheaper, not to the locals anymore, because this market is slowly ticking up. Right now, for example, downtown, you can get a three-bedroom for about 300,000 euros. That's an apartment, guys. That's an apartment condo, Okay. That's a three bed. That's that's a little expensive because you take the average property here. You can buy a single family house, three bedroom, two bath, just outside of the city. I would say if you're looking at square footage, maybe like eighteen hundred to let's just say two thousand square feet. You're probably looking at maybe two hundred thousand euros at one eighty. That's more retail. It, it, the best thing to do is to buy that property through a bank foreclosure or something like that, and you can get the property a lot cheaper under. 150,000. I'll give you another example. A buddy of mine bought a property to live in. He bought it for 60,000. He put in uh, 100,000 and it's worth, I want to say 290, close to 300 and it's in the city. Yeah. The exchange rate from the US dollar to euro as of today, because I'm sure this is going to change a lot (laughs) very soon, (laughs) but is the the euro, is it like $1? What is it? Do you know off the top of your head? No. So I'm just trying to get a context for when you say like 200,000 euros, what does that actually mean in US dollars? Is that like 400,000? No, no, no. So it's a little less than that. So the euro is stronger than the US dollar. So whenever whenever I exchange money from the United States to Portugal, I lose money. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's typically right now like 92 cents. If you wanted one euro from me, I'm going to give you 92 cents. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yep. I'm looking at it right now. It's one US dollars, 92 Euro cents, whatever you call that. <laughs> and that goes up and down. Yeah, that goes up and down on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm actually curious about this whole the thing you were talking about earlier about how Portugal is a socialistic government and how people aren't just like rushing to start businesses. 
I'm wondering like why, if yeah. interest rates are so cheap, if you can get such great terms, if there's money to be made, what is the reason for that? Are, is it like, is everything just taken care of so people don't have a need for that or what's going on there? Well, this is a good, maybe, you know, not to get political, but you know, we have Bernie Sanders, right? <laughs> Which is college is free and, and healthcare is free. And that is very similar to here. Okay. The Portugal and uh, socialistic country is very similar to a Bernie Sanders type of way of life. So when everything's taken care of for you, right? And I know there's like different ways of thought about this when, you know, some, unfortunately some people do have to go on food stamps or welfare. If you're not a hustler and you're able to get that kind of treatment all the time, well, you can just settle, right? You can just kind of mellow out and be like, oh yeah, my food's taken care of. This is all, I'm all set. So if you have that attitude and that environment, then that's that's where it comes from. Yeah. Do you think a socialistic atmosphere creates that kind of mindset where it otherwise wouldn't be? Because people are like, well, if I have this option here, it's nice. I might as well just go for that. Or, <laughs> or people who are naturally hustlers, they're going to hustle no matter what, regardless of the, of the environment they're in. Maybe it depends on the person. That's a great question. It, you're absolutely right. Uh, listen, the government is the overall authority. Are there hustlers in every country and every regime? Absolutely. So I have friends here. My, my good friend owns a 55-room, uh, or as they say in hotels, keys, a 55-key hotel. Okay, He's a hustler. Him, his dad, his family. And they're, they just bought another building. They're going to expand it to 85. My business partner, who I'm, I bought 26 apartments here, and included in that is a, uh, a commercial mixed-use space. And the whole thing is going to be an assisted living building. My tenant is my business partner. Okay, so And he's a hustler. This guy is like very well-known on, on the island, but he's a hustler. So in that unique situation, uh, with these 26 apartments I've bought, plus this commercial space, my tenant, he's a motivator. I mean, the guy comes from, listen to this. The guy comes from, he was born in one of the other islands, came to this island for greener pastures per se. And it's very green here, by the way. It's so green. This is his company. He owns the property management company. He calls it Green Vacations. <laughs> My business partner is the one who runs the property management company and manages the short-term rentals. So it was almost like an easy fit when he said, hey, I have this idea. I'm interested in doing an assisted living project. And at the time, Seth, I was like, assisted living? I was in the hotels. I was already looking at hotels. I had offers on hotels and stuff like that. But after a while, these two hotel deals that I got, uh, let's just use the word snaked from mm -hmm. to keep it light. You know, eventually uh, my business partner ended up saying, you know, hey, there's a project over, there's a building over here. This would be good. So we went to go look at it. And yeah, it ended up, and we we just purchased that last year, but it opens up. The assisted living building opens up, hopefully in June, hopefully. Now we got COVID. So the set date was June. But anyway, so to answer that question, yes, I do believe there are hustlers in every country. The government does set the tone of that, you know, whether you're a capitalistic country or a socialist and all that kind of stuff. But I still believe that if you hustle and you build relationships and you work hard, you can still make it. Gotcha. And I know we sort of touched on this earlier, but in terms of the language language barrier thing. So if I don't speak a word of Portuguese, can I do this? Is there a way to make this work or do I really need to get some Rosetta Stone and learn myself some Portuguese <laughs> to survive there. Yeah. Right. You can do it. Actually, I was. I know a lot of people who are investing here. There's a lot of people from Germany and Switzerland. A lot. There's a lot of Swiss money coming in right now into Portugal. Um, and they don't speak a hoot of Portuguese. 
The good thing is the Portuguese people uh, are very welcoming people. They're very friendly to tourists. And there's a lot of people on the island who also provide services who will either do translation or if they're working in real estate, for example, they more than likely speak English as a second language. My lawyer, for example, speaks English as a second language. My property manager speaks uh, English as a second language. So I got you. So there is a way then. There is a way. Yeah. And if there is no way, use Google Translate. (laughs) Did you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's really intriguing. Once I get a little bit more established, man, I have to venture out into investing in in places like the Azores or Belize because the fact that it's sunny and ocean and, you know, an island vibe and and both places I've walked away, like, I feel like until this interview, Will Mitchell's interview, and we can link to that in the show notes. What, what's that? I think episode? it's episode, episode 48, I believe. Yeah, it'll be linked in the, or in the show notes below, guys. But both this conversation and that conversation has left me like, huh, I really think that this is what I'm supposed to get into. I just, I love the idea of uh, short-term rentals. I love the idea of hotels and just investing in like, land and real estate that has intrinsic value, no matter what the government's doing in Portugal, the Azores is always going to be an amazing place. Same thing with Belize. Same thing with the reason why I flip land in Florida. No matter what the heck's happening in the government, Florida is always going to be valuable. I don't know, man. I just am sitting over here on the edge of my seat, extremely (laughs) inspired to uh, go take over the world. (laughs) Jared, let me tell you something. We're looking at now a very unique situation in the world where people are being pushed into work from home situations, right? But before the COVID, right? You guys look at what you guys were doing, like what Seth was doing. Virtual was already in place. So if you start now, there's already people doing this. They're not on stages. They're not gurus. They're They're quiet people. You don't even know their names. There's already people investing here remotely, right? But the thing is, we are like, I don't want to say we're pioneers, but if you start talking about it and you start doing it, then you end up becoming a pioneer to many other people. But I think in the near future, uh, that more and more people are going to start investing globally. It's becoming more easier because of technology and blockchain in the near future. It's going to become so much more easier to do this than ever before. I feel like I'm going in there earlier, but I have to get through all this hardship. And there's a lot of like paperwork and stuff like that, that some things I don't know, laws that you have to learn along the way. The way to navigate all that is find the best people in that area. I'm talking like my attorney is the best attorney on the island. Like no joke. He's He's probably one of the best attorneys even in the continent of Portugal. Is he a little bit more expensive? Yes, but guess what? I don't have to worry so much, right? I know we speak the same language. He also connects me to great people. Anyway, my point is, is that you can start now and there's, I think there's going to be a lot more opportunities of investing outside of the United States as these uh, avenues open up to people. I love it, man. Let's transition a bit to Uganda because I'm sure the climate in Uganda is totally different than the climate in Portugal. At least that's my assumption. Yeah. So lay the the foundation for us in, in Uganda. What are you doing primarily as your investment strategy? What does financing look like? Where do you find deals? Is there something like the MLS there? All that stuff. Let's do one of those at one a time. Of those at a time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. First of all, guys, let me tell you, I love living in booming areas. Okay. I love, li- I love action. I'm, I don't like slow markets. Okay. Uh, and actually, where I grew up, where I was born, is a very slow moving market. It's so boring. Nothing's going on there. When I got to Charlotte, I was like, whoa, this is the best city in the country because it was just <laughs> explosive growth. 
they were buying land, building apartments, buying land, building apartments. I'm like, wow, I've never seen so much growth. Uh, never lived in an area with so much growth. Then when I got to Uganda, I was like, holy smokes. I thought Charlotte was booming. I Just in my neighborhood in Uganda, there's over 20 apartments, apartment buildings being built. It's insane. Just in my neighborhood. Then you go down into the city. They're constructing brand new skyscrapers. It's on another level. I mean, it's it's just fantastic. But where's all that economic growth coming from? Is there some huge industry booming in Uganda right now? Or? There is a lot of industry. Uganda, Africa itself, the African Union is about to complete its unionship. You know, there's the African Union and uh, they just finished signing uh, last year in 2019. They just finished signing, I think, 54 out of 56 signatures to become unified. So in the near future, we might see the African Union with 55, 56 states. Okay. So that's in the works. China is heavily invested in, okay, I'm just going to speak for Uganda, but China is heavily invested in Uganda. Yeah, they're building roads, they're building trains. They're, I mean, it's just, it's on another level. So a lot of that comes from manufacturing. I would say the tech industry is not, it's not like there's a bunch of companies rushing there to build, right? Like tech companies moving there. However, one thing that's Uganda is like more like China in regards to technology compared to the U.S. I feel like the U.S. is about 10 years behind compared to China. For example, you know, in China, there's no cash. Like literally, I think 2% of the population has cash in there in villages. Everybody else uses uh, WeChat and uh, their profile and it's all a cashless society. Very similar to Uganda. Everything is through what's called mobile money. Mark Zuckerberg went to Kenya to learn how to do Facebook payments, which is coming out, that new coin. I forgot the name of it. Sorry, guys. He went to Kenya to learn how they do it because Kenya was the founding country in all of Africa to do mobile money. So this whole idea of sending money, buying things right from your phone, and I'm not talking through an app or a website, guys. I'm I'm talking literally like a wallet on your phone. You know, Apple just came out with that just a few years ago. This has already been in existence in Uganda for many, many years. So there's a lot of things like that that are really impressive. Taxes are really cheap. When you buy a property, you only pay the taxes one time at purchase. And it's 1.5% of the value of that property. That's it. You're done. You don't pay taxes ever again. You're talking about property taxes. So like what we normally pay every year here in the US, they pay it one time there? One time, that's it. Wow. That's an awesome thing. Yeah. yeah. I see Seth taking notes there. Will it? So like how do, how do governments... I guess they just don't draw their money from property taxes, right? They must have income tax or sales tax or something else. Yeah, there's sales tax, right? There's um, the sales tax, if I recall, uh, 18%, which is actually matching into Portugal. Portugal has an 18% tax on uh, sales tax. That's what money comes from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, there are other avenues like the, go- the government, for example, like remember how uh, this Trump administration started creating tariffs for China about bringing stuff in, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, that tax is already there in Uganda. So, uh, you know, to, to buy an iPhone in the US, you know, it's like whatever, $1,000, right? Let's just say like an average. In, in Uganda, it's like $3,000 because you got to pay all the tax. <laughs> I'm inflating numbers here, but, but the tax is very high. So to get good quality electronics in, in Uganda is very expensive. And it's mostly because of tax. Yeah, that's actually, I think it was Barbados or some some place I remember uh, going there and don't quote me on that. It was some some remote island, but it the taxes to own a car is a hundred and fifty percent. Like it's insane. Right. <laughs> and yeah. as a result, like nobody has cars. Or there's like 
at the most one car per household because it's just crazy expensive. So yeah, exactly. It's it's like that. Now the the biggest disparity in Uganda is the separation, the barrier to income. You know, you got big social gaps of uh, economics. So I live in the city of Kampala, the capital. I live just outside of the city and the city is booming. I mean, beautiful apartments, all this stuff and very quality builds material. I mean, the buildings are amazing. The, the, the funny thing is, is 20 minutes outside of you drive outside of the city, you're in a third world country. So you can feel like you're in a second, first world country, let's say second world country living in the city. But as soon as you go outside of the city, you're in a third world country where we're talking mud houses or brick red houses, small huts, and your water, your kitchen, all of that, your bathroom is all outside. So it's a little bit different of a type of environment in that regard. When it comes to um, banking in that country, for example, if you want to go get a loan, your interest rate is like 18% <laughs> on a minimum. Yeah. However, the savings rate in Uganda is 13 14%. So if you put your money in a savings account, you're earning like 13% interest. Wow. That's oh, wow. that's awesome. Why not just throw your money yeah. there instead of the stock <laughs> yeah, market? That's, yeah. Well, that's yeah, yeah. even like real estate investors that are like trying to, what? That's awesome. What's the catch? <laughs> What's the catch? Right. Yeah. You have to be, one of the things is you cannot, they do not allow foreigners to wire money and let money sit there, you know, just to earn interest. So there is some regulation to that. So yeah. Those Ugandans have everything, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what about finding deals though, man? Like how do you find, do they have an MLS? Oh my gosh. No, get, this is now, this stuff is really crazy. So there is no MLS. Okay. Uh, They have what's called GG. Okay. Which is Craigslist. It's like a Craigslist. They call it GG, which is an online platform for classified ads. Okay. That is very popular. And everything else guys is a sign or word of mouth. That's it. Word of mouth. There is no MLS. Now, there is um, a way to go into the search. They're getting better at this because for a long period of time, Uganda is is broken down into a few kingdoms. It's not like uh, you, know, you go get a title and it's owned by the government, right? That kind of thing. It's actually a kingdom. So they're actually now breaking up the kingdoms and dispersing titles and uh, creating new titles, let's put it that way. So in the mix of that, there's been a lot of who bought this land? Oh, I bought this land. No, you didn't. I'm on title. What title do you have? A lot of confusion. <laughs> so that's not everywhere, but it's in some districts uh, of where it is. So, but while while I've been there, I've been buying up some land myself. Yeah, and that's that's actually one of the ongoing concerns I've heard about. Uh, I don't know about Uganda specifically, but in a lot of third world countries, like buying up real estate at all, it's a big deal if the government respects property rights. Does it actually mean something if your name is written on the title, or could it just get wiped out tomorrow when the government's overthrown? It you lose everything. Like, is it a pretty solid title system in Uganda? Yeah, I think what's important is to always look at the stability of the government and military security. Uganda is a safe haven for many refugees. That's a one a, first a good sign that, you know, there's stability. Very strong military. There's people from Somalia, South Sudan, Tanzania that have come in for refugee purposes, especially Somalia because they're having civil war. So they're very secure in that aspect. Now, when it comes to property rights and all that stuff, yes, they do care about that. And it's very protected. I would be careful with, you know, countries that are are going through war, whether it was, let's say, Afghanistan or, you know, Somalia, right? You do have to be careful with those with those kind of countries. And again, again, would you be want to investing there? Is it a short term thing, a long term thing? And why are you investing there? That's really the things you have to consider. Yeah. 
So if your goal is to find deals below market value in Uganda, what is an an effective strategy for doing that? Because like you said, direct mail doesn't exist there and there is no MLS system. So like, how would you go about finding somebody who is a motivated seller? Well, that's a great question. And in Uganda, I find there's a lot of motivated sellers. There's a lot boatloads because economics, right? So I'll give an example. Sometimes people will sell like acres and acres of land just to pay for their kids' school fees. Okay, Uganda has a very different, unique uh, education system. There is free education, but it it is very bad. So in order for your kids to get a good education, you're going to pay for a boarding school or you're going to pay for a private school. There's more private schools than there are 7-Elevens. Let's put it out. You know, there's like convenience stores everywhere in the United States. I mean, there is private schools everywhere in Uganda. Yeah. So there's a lot of hardship when someone goes through a hardship and they need money to keep their kids in school because they know education is so important that they'll sell their land. They'll sell their house to keep their kid in school. So you have a lot of that. Then you have your health issues and all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, people selling, they went to the hospital, whatever. Divorce is not a big thing. So going going to a lawyer and trying to get divorce leads and stuff like that, not common. Probate, not too common. Honestly, I'd say the most motivated sellers you're going to get is some, some economical or financial stress, right? That's probably the biggest motivated sellers you're going to get. And that's actually how we get most of our deals. Yeah, we get most of our deals that way there. And what, what is your primary strategy in Uganda specifically? Yeah, so we've been doing two strategies. We've been doing land and we've been doing short-term rentals. Uganda has a very busy short-term rental market. And here's, here's the powerful thing. and uh, It's just phenomenal. You can literally do a sublease in Uganda. Okay, You could do a sublease and you can literally three times your money for that rental. That's when you you do a normal lease from just the owner and then you sublease the property to somebody else, but you do it at a much higher rate so that you can, you said, triple your money? You can literally triple your money. Yeah, you can triple your money. I know people who are literally renting houses for $800 a month and they are are making $3,000 and more a month. You know, it's unique. There's a lot of people from Australia, the UK, Europe, China who are coming to Uganda for investment opportunity. And when they stay there, there is a big mindset. Okay, here's, here's Nathan, how is, are these people paying this amount of money for these rentals? There's a big fear in Uganda, okay, from foreigners, that when they come to Uganda, that they're unsafe. Like, I want to be in a safe, secure area. Well, guess what? The locals play on that. <laughs> they play on that fear. They increase their prices. And, and the reality is they're living in the same neighborhoods that are fine. They're normal neighborhoods, but they hike up the prices because a lot of foreigners think, oh no, I'm in Uganda, I'm in a foreign country, something's going to happen to me. So they pay more for a more secure place. But the reality is it's not, I got a nice place, man. This is like, it's got grass. I mean, it's a huge yard, a great place for my kids to play. It's super safe. We have a security guard all the time. Yeah. It's a little different too. I say security guard, but he's also a gatekeeper. So for example, you know how in the United States or wherever you have an automated garage door opener, they don't have that. They have basically uh, people who open up the door. It's a person. That's all they do. Yeah. So talk about job growth. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Wow. Yeah. I mean, can't they just install a garage door opener? <laughs> like, wouldn't that be cheaper? Yeah. Well, I mean, they could, but then, you know, Uganda, for example, I'll give you an example. They just started installing toll booths and they had a big decision to make. Should we make it technology? Like they had like a bunch of new toll booths coming in because they got all these roads coming in. So should we do it with computers? Or should we do it with people? They actually chose people. Whoa, seriously? 
Yes. Interesting. That was a big decision. They're like, there was people fighting like, no, let's do digital tags and they have the technology for it. They said no, because they know they're going to employ like thousands of more people. And what they need most now is jobs. The interesting thing is the middle class is on the rise in Uganda. It's on the rise. More and more people are buying cars. More people are uh, buying homes. It's on the rise. They're now doing 30-year mortgages. That's never been done before. They're doing 100% financing. That's never been done before. That's interesting that there's such economic growth there, yet there's still such a huge need for such low-paying jobs. It's almost like there's maybe like two separate uh, categories of, of, of workers there. Maybe there's like the high-end, middle, upper class, and then there's the ultra-low class ones. I don't know. Yeah, there's definitely three levels. There's three levels. We got high, yeah, high, middle, and low income earners, right? The, the reality is, though, when we talk about poverty in the United States, I mean, you can think of a homeless person or someone living in the projects or, excuse me, low income housing. However, when we talk low income in, in Uganda, it's below low income in housing, right? It's, a different it's below level that. Of poverty. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, it's dirt floors, you know. No, no electric, no light bulbs in their house, right? It's just on a whole other level. And, and by the way, guys, if you ever want to go out to, if you ever want to come here or you ever want to go to Uganda, just let me know. Some of our buddies in the business have flown out there and we've spent time together. So if you ever want to go, just let me know. We'll hook you up. Let's talk about currency for a minute. What does it look like in Uganda? Because in Portugal, it's euros, but I know my wife's from Kazakhstan. And if anything is done, that is a big purchase, whether it's a car or a house or something like that, it's done in US dollars. Is that similar in Uganda or what's it like there? Yeah. So it's uh, right now the exchange rate, I believe is one US dollar and you get 3000, I want to say 700 shillings. It's Ugandan shillings. Uh, so what does that mean? Okay. So let's take this. Uh, how much, you tell me guys, it's been a while. How much would this bottle of water cost? This is 1.5 liters. So how much do you think it would cost in the US? Right. Two to three dollars. That's right, two to three dollars. Here in Portugal, this costs probably like eighty cents. In Uganda, this costs twenty-five cents. Like twenty-five cents in U.S. dollars, not in the local currency. Yeah, yeah. In Uganda shillings, that would be one thousand shillings. So your money could actually go pretty far in Uganda if you wanted to retire there, right? It does go very far. Our long-term plan is, you know, we're creating opportunities for our family and giving them the opportunity to have options, right? In the future, my, my, I'd love my children to go maybe to some school in, uh, in Europe and get very well educated in the future. But retirement, uh, it could either be here or Uganda. You could go a long way. Your money goes a long way in Uganda. Now, when it comes to uh, finding tenants and like screening tenants, I guess you don't even really mess with that, right? Because you're doing short-term rentals. Is, is it all through Airbnb and handled on that platform or... Yeah, it's two platforms. So I primarily, even for Portugal, well, Portugal, I do have my property manager. So in Uganda, I use two platforms. I use Airbnb and I use Booking.com. Those are the two primary you know, ones. And it's kind of interesting. Booking.com does better in Portugal than Airbnb. That's because the demographic that uses Booking.com. And then Airbnb does way better in Uganda than it does in uh, than Booking.com. Uh, I do have a property manager in Uganda, and he actually manages everything. He even gets me clients outside of Airbnb and Booking.com. So he does the check-in. He manages everything from check-in, check-out, cleaning, any issues that come up. So he's uh, have a property manager. And that's how you have to be when you go you know, remote and you go virtual. You have to have the teams. You have to hire people. Are you subleasing all these properties, or do you like literally own these properties that you're using as short-term rentals? 
So in, in Uganda, not Portugal, Portugal I own, but in Uganda, the land we've been buying is owned. Okay. Now the short-term rentals, I wanted to try the whole subleasing method that I heard a few some time ago and all these guys online doing it. So I was like, let's do it. So actually all of them have been um, subleased, all those short-term rentals. Yeah. And that's, that's all going okay. Is there anything about that that's unexpectedly challenging or is it like, especially in light of COVID and all that? Oh, so they're all empty right now. Yeah. All of them are empty. But this is what we've done. We have shift, uh, shifted all our short-term rentals and shifted them into long-term rentals. So we had to reduce our prices. They are fully furnished apartments. So we do have the furniture. We provide the furniture. So we've increased the price a little bit and everything's long-term. I don't have a problem right now signing six-month or even one-year leases right now because I don't expect this to come back anytime soon. So how do you find tenants then that like, how do you screen tenants in Uganda? Yeah, good question. There's no like online search. You can do a credit check and all that stuff. There's none of that. So you basically would ask them, you know, where with the job, like, what do they do? How long they've been working there? And you kind of want to find some simple things. Like, do they have a car? Primarily the pro- properties that I pick up are for middle-class individuals, right? They're middle-class people. So I identify some key factors. I like to find people who have a car. If they have a car, I know they have a steady job. If they don't have a car and they're using public transportation, eh, they probably could lose their job pretty quickly. And when it comes to finding a good property manager or contractor or anybody like that, I mean, super important task, like you alluded to earlier. So you just take references or something, or is it a similar process to how you do it here in the US? You just find reputable sources who say, yeah, this is a good guy, work with him. Or how do you do that? That's a great question, Seth. Seth, my, my philosophy to this hasn't changed even before, you know, I was investing before the internet, what it is today. Okay. Yeah. So my philosophy and my method hasn't changed since I started and that's getting good referrals. So I'm not the one to go on to like home advisor uh, and I'm not nothing against home advisor, by the way, or Craigslist and all that stuff. I'm not into that. I'm more into contacting great people in great areas and asking them for referrals. Great people. And I don't just mean like, I have to like, really find out who's doing well in that area. When I found my property manager here, like I said, he was a referral from my friend who owns a hotel and I trust him. And guess what? It's been a great relationship ever since. Now we're doing the assisted living project. In Uganda, it was getting a referral from someone who I trusted. He gave me the referral. I monitored. I I gave him a few tasks. He was very well done. So I like to test people also after I get a referral, give them a little bit, see how they do. And then if they perform well, then you keep going. Just like you would in a, if you're hiring, let's say a VA, test them out first, see how they do. Hire experience, don't hire potential. I like that. Yeah, hire experience, do not hire potential. And Seth, I just want to add this because I know your audience, you know, everybody's doing stuff virtually, right? A lot of people, when they think about hiring a virtual assistant or someone in a different country to do work for them, I think one of the most important things to realize or to find is someone who's already doing this every day, doing that task over and over again. For somebody else, they're already doing it every day. It's already natural to them. A lot of people get stuck and they think, oh, I have to train my VA, so I need to learn this first. No, watch the VA. Watch you, watch you learn stuff from your own VA. Get someone who's more knowledge, like knows specific things a little better than you do, maybe. You know, there's been times I've, one of my VAs, George, I mean, he's really smart. He's taught. I'm like, wow, George, good job, man. That's awesome. I mean, that's what you want to get to. Yeah, I got you. Now, I know this is totally coming from a place of ignorance. I don't know the situation, but when I just, okay. when I think of Uganda, 
I wonder, is there like a lot of corruption in that kind of country? Like, is it, is, is there a lot of fly by night people? Like when I think of working in like Mexico, for example, I would probably think a very similar thing, whether or not that's true. I don't even know. I just, that's what I think. Is that accurate or is that totally off base? And if it is accurate, how big of a problem is that? That's a great question. And, you know, I, I truly believe corruption is everywhere because we're all humans. Like, you know, it's interesting. I was actually doing trainings in Uganda for major companies. I've, I, you know, I, I'd only do real estate, but I've been a trainer for many years and coaching and all that stuff. So I've actually partnered with a company there in Uganda and I started training some of the top, I trained Coca-Cola, Uganda. I've trained the biggest insurance companies in Uganda. And one of the trainings that I did in Uganda, I trained some of the top companies about bribery and corruption. Now, let me tell you something interesting about this because it wasn't on my radar years ago. Bribery and corruption can be easily defined as even networking. Go look it up. Networking can even be defined, is actually defined under corruption and bribery. Okay. Because you're trying to build yourself up. I'm like, how is that even included? But anyway, my point is in different countries, corruption is defined in different ways. I truly believe in the United States, for example, corruption is legalized through lobbying. Okay. So there is different countries that are going to do different things. You know, I, I've even been told, like, for example, this is something I do. And I'm, maybe you've done this before. When my title company or my attorney, we close a deal quickly, I send them an Amazon gift card. That's considered corruption. And, and I'm like, what? If you dive deep, and even in some countries, they're like, oh, you do that, they're going to favor you next time. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's the idea, <laughs> right? So it's a gratitude and favoritism, right? So when you're trying to close deals quick, but again, this is a gray area. To answer your question, Seth, the reality is you don't want to get corruption to a point where people are totally breaking the law and there are things being done that are not legal, ethical, moral, right? To a point where it's just uh, the wild west. So I get that. Now, is that more prevalent in some countries than others? Yes. Uh, I found in Uganda, I would say that there's a lot of the mindset. Um, I think of Robert Kiyosaki whenever I hear this, but there's a lot of the mindset of, because there's a lot of poor people there that they always feel the wealth, the wealthy are rich and they'll always be rich. Does that make sense? So they start talking about corruption much more often, like, oh, they're only wealthy because their family's wealthy or they cheated people, right? So there's a lot of talk like that. However, like I told you earlier, in Uganda, they're a capitalistic society. They're a democracy. Everybody wants to start a business. It's impressive. It's shocking, actually. I was, I've been so impressed at how many Ugandans want to make it on their own and start their business. They're full of ideas. Corruption is... Uh, is something that's a, a very difficult topic, but I don't find it as prevalent uh, as it's, I guess the media puts it out to be. Gotcha. It really is kind of relative to how you define corruption and who you point fingers at. And, and I agree. It's, it's much easier to call a person corrupt when you're not the person who's in the place of privilege, you know? <laughs> so. Right, right, right. So one last question on Uganda, similar question to uh, Portugal. So the language barrier thing, how hard is that if you don't speak the, uh, what language is it in Uganda? The, the well, there's actually 54 languages oh, in Uganda. that's helpful. Yeah, <laughs> they're all tribal. <laughs> yeah, there are, a lot of them are tribal based. Okay. The primary language in Uganda is called Luganda with an L. It's the primary language. Yes, I do speak Luganda. I started learning it hired a trainer and, you know, took classes and all that kind of stuff. So I do speak Luganda. 
However, Uganda was colonized by the British. So it, uh, the second language is English. So you literally can go anywhere and talk English. And most people know it. Sweet. Well, Nathan, I really appreciate everything you've been sharing. It's been awesome to talk with you here. It's been very, very intriguing. Yeah, I've been loving it. As we kind of near the end of this, uh, we have three exit interview questions that we ask of all our guests, just kind of unrelated to all, all the stuff we've been talking about, just to figure out more about uh, how you work, how your brain works, how you think through things. So our first question is, what is your biggest fear? Oh my gosh. What is my biggest fear? No big deal. Don't sweat it. Yeah, no, no big deal. Cause I, I only have a brand that's based around fear. Um, I would say, <laughs> I'll tell you this. It's a great question. My fears are not business related, by the way. Uh, first of all, I'm a big believer that everything I manage is God given. Like that's one of the things I believe. So if I'm currently in a position and I'm doing something operating, it's because it's been given to me to manage, to grow, to operate in. So when it comes to business, I really don't fear. And if I'm in a fear position in business, it's because I'm not adding enough value. I would say the biggest fear I have right now is my son falling off the table. Like it's been on my mind. He's now climbing. He's 11 months and he's climbing up on the table. I just fear him like falling off the table and knocking himself out. Yeah. <laughs> I totally get that. My son is now three. So he's sort of out of that. But man, oh, there were months there. And and he did like bash his tooth in at one point and it's horrible. So I, 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 I wish you all the best. <laughs> I literally <laughs> I literally bought a playpen this morning because my uh one year old, he he just turned one years old last month. He's very much crawling and he's like in that spot right when he's about to start walking. So like he'll take a few steps and then like just <laughs> hit the deck, man. So my anxiety is very high too, bro. I feel you. Yeah. So my son started walking at 10 months. Okay. He's now climbing a table that's the size of my knee. I got videos. I'll send it to you guys. He's climbing up and he's touching the TV. And I'm thinking, my God, this kid's going to knock the TV over and just, it's going to be crazy. So in regards to that, guys, I, I can't say I have any other fears that are there. I love horror movies. I love horror movies uh, because I, I'm into film. I, I love I love a good horror movie. But anyway, I'm not scared of it. What's your favorite one? Oh, my gosh. My favorite series is Paranormal Activity because they take everyday life and it's like, oh, that could have happened, right? Where the other ones are kind of like, you know, I don't know, a little bit made up a little bit. So, but paranormal activity is very well done. Yeah, man. I, I remember seeing the first one in the theater by myself, which was a very foolish decision. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, there is, there is something about that particular topic. Maybe if, if you're one who believes in spiritual warfare, maybe it seems more relevant, which I am one who happens to believe in that. But like a lot of horror movies, like you say, are just like, it's like, whatever, this is stupid. This would never actually happen. But there's something about that that really kind of hits close to home. So yeah. I get it. <laughs> well, Seth, I have, I have a similar belief. And I'll tell you what, though. Um, I have a, a stronger belief about this and myself it is this. If you believe in ghosts, you're going to see ghosts. That's what I believe. And I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe I'm going to see a spirit or something like that. So guess what? I live my life. Like, no, that's not even going to happen to me. It's, it's not even a thought because I don't believe it. What you believe is what you're going to end up perceiving, right? But yeah, but I, I truly love when it comes to filmmaking and all that, I love pushing fear because fear in my life, I grew up a very shy guy 
And I grew up with pushing that button. I, my, my coaches has always had to push me over that barrier, especially getting into real estate to push me to get over my fears. So I love today grabbing fear and say, you don't have a hold of me. You have no control. You know, so I, I love dancing with fear. I love to be in that. And I'm not saying I walk down dark alleys. That doesn't freak me out or anything. But my point is when I watch a movie, it takes me there mentally. And it's like, oh, yeah, all right. But I enjoy the cinematic of it. Yeah, both me and Seth are videographers in our heart. <laughs> so what's something that you're most proud of? Most proud of? And we'll give you a pass. You don't have to say being on the Art Tipster podcast. We already know. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Well, it does have to do with does have to do with being on the podcast, though. I would say the most thing I'm personally proud of outside of my family, you know, having a family and kids and all that. And that's an amazing experience. The most thing I'm proud of personally is my business of helping people overcome stepping from faith to fear, uh, excuse me, fear to faith. And helping people discover and have mental like these mental barriers and break through them. That's probably been the biggest thing. The most thing I'm proud of is when I have someone that says, Nathan, you helped me overcome this. And now I've done deals. I've made money. I've increased my lifestyle. And that to me is the most thing I'm proud of. My, my client's success is what I'm most proud of. Yeah, that is a pretty cool thing, especially like when you've been on the other end of that and you know what it's like to have those aha moments or realize you're capable of more than you thought you were. You kind of realize the magic of that, but then when you can flip it around and realize like, Hey, I was able to do that for somebody else. That's really an amazing thing to be able to, to work at in your life. It is absolutely. So what is the most important lesson you have ever learned? Oh my gosh, really? The most, this is like, you know, life lessons. Oh my goodness. Okay. The one that comes to mind right now, uh, because of your previous question is my buddy, Dave Seymour. He's a real estate guy. He's been on the TV show, Flipping Boston. And I remember uh, this is when he was smoking. He doesn't smoke anymore, but when he was smoking, we were outside on the deck and he was smoking and we were talking about this product that I was coming out with. And I was selling it for really cheap, like $149. And I'll never forget this. I was going to go speak at the New York RIA group in Brooklyn. This was two weeks before that. And I said, oh, I said, I'm a little nervous. I, I don't know if people are going to buy my product. And, you know, uh, is, is $149 too expensive? And he turned around and he looked at me and he poked me right in the chest. And he's from England, by the way. So he's poking me in the chest and he's speaking with me in that British accent. If you don't raise, your bleeping price. <laughs> I am never going to talk to you again. Wow. And I was like, why? He's like, because you are worth it. You're worth what you've put into that training is so valuable and you're worth more than that. Okay. One last thing that he told me, I went to Jim Rohn's funeral. You guys familiar with Jim Rohn? Oh, really? Not kidding. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he used to be my mentor. Actually, I was are in one of serious? his coaching programs. Yeah. Holy yeah. Cow. yeah. That's crazy, man. Yeah. Went to his funeral. My buddy Dave went with me again. We were traveling. We went to the funeral. Guys, I was so excited to meet Brian Tracy. I'm sorry. I was just like a fanboy. I was like, Brian Tracy is going to be there. Brian Tracy is going to be there. So I was looking for him everywhere. And my buddy Dave could see that I was like really a fanboy about this. All of a sudden I see him with his assistant going up a less escalator. And I'm like, Dave, I'll be back. So I start running. He stops me. He grabs me by the collar and pulls me. And he says, look at me. Look at me. Everyone in this world, their pants go to their ankles. 
And I'm like, what? <laughs> this is how he is. He's like, everyone's pants goes to their ankles. You don't need to fanboy that guy because you are better than him. He said, you know what the only difference is between you and him? I was like, uh, gosh, uh, 21 published books, <laughs> like, you know, all this experience. And he's like, no, 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 you haven't started yet. You haven't started. The problem is he's already been doing this for 30 years. You need to get started. And I was like, wow. He's like, everything that you have within you just needs to come out and you just haven't let it out yet. So guys, I know that's a, a long answer, but there's two valuable points there. Number one, the most valuable lessons I learned was that I am worth more than what I think I am, as long as I'm adding value to people's lives. And number two is that once you change your mind and be- start believing that you and, and you're providing value and that you are worth more, then you can command more. You can now say, you know what? My prices are this much. This property is this much, right? And you can start commanding more for your life. And when you do that, your wealth increases. So those were the, probably the most valuable lessons I've ever learned. Yeah, those are pretty profound. I am curious though, just to be the devil's advocate. So what if you had increased your price to some just crazy number and then nobody nobody bought it? And the feedback you got was, well, it's too expensive. I don't think it's worth it. Would you have assumed, okay, I guess I'm wrong. I guess I'm not worth that much. Or how, how would you mentally process that if that was the response from the market? Well, I'll tell you what, I did exactly that. Let me tell you, because I grew up in the seminar industry, I saw prices of products that were like over $100,000 for seminars and all this stuff. Yeah. So one day, I'm not kidding you, I raised my price on one of my programs to $97,000. Not kidding you, Seth, raised it. And you know what? A few people called me. One guy uh, was in Massachusetts. Uh, Actually, I was with my buddy, Dave. He drove from New York City with his business partner to Massachusetts to meet me just to interview me to understand why I was charging $97,000. And I had another buddy of mine with me there at the time. And we just did the whole interview in someone's yard. We were at a, we were at a rehab project. And, and I explained to him what I learned in that moment. And he didn't buy. He wasn't my customer. You know what happened though? I held my price. And guess what? The right customers did show up. Seth, listen, another thing I'm proud of is I've had clients pay me over $100,000 whether it was not in one shot, maybe it was in six months or a six-month contract or a one-year contract. But I have clients paid me because I know the value that I brought and the amount of money that I've made my clients. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I know that if you have a price that's higher, it's okay. I'll give you any, one last example. Is the, what the example I always give to people is this. You know, like fitness coaches are really prevalent in the world, right? There's like fitness coaches for... Right, okay. So if you're a fitness coach and you charge... $25 an hour, right? Some people are going to think that's too cheap. Some people are going to be like, oh, $25. So when if you're marketing to celebrities and they're looking for a personal trainer and a coach, if they look at $25, they're going to be like, that's too cheap. I'm looking at $300 or $500 an hour. That's how much I pay my personal coach. So to some people, your price is too cheap and it's low quality. And to other people, it's too high right? So you have to know your audience. You have to know who your target market is. And uh, one thing I learned from my buddy Dave is that premium pricing. And I actually learned this from Dan Kennedy as well. I learned uh, from Dan Kennedy, premium pricing and marketing to the affluent and how to do that. So again, that was another thing I learned over the years. I hope that answers your question because it really comes down to mindset. Yeah. And scaling up. It is interesting that like no matter what price you choose, 
Like anything, somebody out there is going to judge you for that. Either you're too cheap or you're too expensive. So it's like, well, just, you know, (laughs) stick your flag somewhere. (laughs) And something that I've noticed kind of being around, I don't think that we've had a price change since I've been here on the land course, but I know I knew you when you, you have upped your prices on the Landmaster class and it's funny, man. It's weird. I know from your feedback and from other people that I've talked to, it's this weird thing. When your product is priced relatively low, the people that it attracts complain and want refunds and there's headaches. But like, it's almost like the more you charge, uh, the barrier to entry is like a filter against bad customers or something. Because the people that we work with now, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, Seth, but it's very rare for us to get somebody asking for their money back or having a negative experience with the land masterclass. Yeah. It's, I won't say never, but like almost never. And that is the thing. I remember when we started out super cheap, like my goal was to be so that literally anybody could afford it. And I felt really good about that. The thing was though, like I had this light bulb moment one day when somebody emailed me and said, Hey, I see this other land course that's priced like 10 times higher than yours. So I'm assuming yours is is not nearly as good. Can you explain how it's worse? And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, like I. <laughs> the reality of that, Seth, I'm going to interrupt you. The reality is for all your audience, you provide more value than any other land trainer out there. Hands down. Well, thanks, I've man. been in Appreciate this industry. That. Oh yeah. I've been in this industry 15 years. I've been, I used to work for Rich Dad Education, Trump University. I know the industry and you are the only land guy. And this is why I admire what you do and what you deliver to your community. You're the only land person in the industry that delivers the most value, hands down. Wow, I appreciate that, man. I mean, so the fact you change, no problem. The fact you change your prices and you're right. You know, sometimes it's like, if you give it for free, it's like, you know, people will think, oh, it must be cheap, right? It must be not worth it. It must be not good. There's a lot of people who can feel that way. Yeah, for sure. Um, but when you increase your price and, and you got a price, you, you have to price your product to the, the right clientele that's willing to pay for that, for that value. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing too. It's like some people will sneer at one price or another, but really like you got to factor in how much experience, how many years did it take the educator to even know what they're talking about? To be in a position to talk about that thing. Like, I mean, you're not going to compensate them for all the time they spent just so that you could have a much easier ride to get there. (laughs) (laughs) And shorten the learning curve and speed up your process, right? I mean, that's the idea. Yeah. For sure. Well, Nathan, if people want to learn more about you, all the things you got going on, is there a website they should check out or should they find you on social media somewhere? Or what's the best way to learn more about what you got going on? Well, the easiest thing over the years, I have a, I have a few companies. I think I have like six or seven companies these days, real estate companies, consulting companies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, one of my, one of the company that, that I feel good about, the one that I give back to other people, you can go to Google. The easiest way to do this, go to Google, type in fearless millionaire. Thank you, Ryan Dice, for helping me come up with that name. Yes, you can just easily type in fearless millionaire. You can go to my, my website will pop up. It's the only brand with that name. You can easily go there, connect with me online. That's probably the best way. When it comes to real estate stuff, most of my stuff is private. Um, I, I, when I'm raising money for my deals, it's private networking and stuff like that. But anybody can hit me up online. And if they're interested in partnering with me or investing in one of my projects, it's not a problem. They just can connect with me uh, right on the website. Man, is there any huge influencer you don't know? I feel like you've dropped so many names here. It's like, mean, seriously? Man, <laughs> he also knows Brandon Bouchard, which was like yeah, the wow. gateway to yeah. me getting into entrepreneurship. That thing changed my life, man. That thing set me on the course to where I'm at today. 
that's awesome. It is a, it is a great read, and yeah, there. Unfortunately, um, the good thing is is uh, I, I I was gullible to all the books I read, and, and all those books are some of the classics that we know: Think and Grow Rich, Rich Dad Poor Dad, uh, Personal Power by Tony Robbins. Tony, Tony Robbins changed my life, but. I, I was so gullible to all those books and trainings, the classics, right? That I believed everything I read and I applied everything I read. So I believed and applied. And guess what? It, those, that stuff works. That's the thing. It works. So that is how I got around guys like Brendan Burchard, Tony Robbins, because I was in groups. I was in mastermind groups, marketing mastermind groups, speaker mastermind groups with those guys. I used to be the student. I used to be the, the guy in the seats. This goes back to that story I shared about Dave. See, I, I've been in the seminar industry for so long. I used to be the guy in the seats looking up at these guys, taking notes while they're on stage. So when I was transitioning, like I said, my boy Dave Seymour told me, you're just as good as they are. You just haven't started. You haven't put in the time yet. And uh, he was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. Cool. We will uh, include a link to Fearless Millionaire in the show notes for this episode. By the way, this is episode 66. You can find... Everything we talked about here, retipster.com forward slash six, six. So Nathan, thank you again so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome to talk to you. Thanks, Seth. Thanks, Dan. So there you have it, folks. That was our conversation with Nathan. I hope you enjoyed it. Jaren, were there any big takeaways you got from that that are going to stick with you? A lot. I think the biggest one that comes to mind is about pricing and how he was talking about he charges $97,000 for one product. There would have been a time when I would have heard that and my mouth would have dropped to the floor and I would have been uh, secretly judging the crap out of Nathan being like, how (laughs) could you ever do that to people? But I have in, I guess just time and being around have found primarily in like commercial real estate, commercial multifamily, high priced education packages are actually justified because like, let's say you spent $30,000 on a mentorship program, but you were able to, if you took action, get your first deal in three months. Well, in that first deal, just in the acquisition fee alone, you're going to be making, if you're on the general partnership, you're going to make it back plus some. So like it, it totally makes sense. I think that really the the major issue is is about the value that is being given and the ROI. If I spend 97,000 obviously if I have it, right? But if I spend $97,000 on a program, am I going to make $200,000 the next month? Well, any anybody would take that. So I just you have to weigh the ROI of the education and the program, I think compared to to your investment. It is an interesting uh kind of a mind game because I know what you mean. Like I, I have similar things in life too, where I just kind of have this snap judgment where I just hear a number and immediately start thinking bad things about that person. And <laughs> it, But at the same time, like it's actually a very similar thing to when we make a really low offer to somebody just on the other opposite end of the spectrum. Why would somebody judge me because I'm sending them a really low offer? Like this really has nothing to do with personal offense. It's just a number. Like if it doesn't work for you, then don't do it. End of story. There's no reason you need to like hate me for it. On one hand, like I get it. But on the other hand, it's like, just think about this logically. This doesn't have to mean anything. Like if it doesn't work, then just walk away. No big deal. No harm, no offense. And, but a lot, a lot of people get really just up up in arms about it. I know like on bigger pockets forums for years, it's been a, like really a hot topic that people talk about just like really hating on anybody who charges anything 
for uh, real estate information. And not to call bigger pockets out because everybody knows, if you know me, I very, very, very deeply respect bigger pockets. Yeah, for sure. But I do too. It is very interesting. It was very smart on their end from a brand play because they, and I don't know if this was intentional. I really don't think it was intentional, but with them creating a division down real estate investor education programs as like the gurus and then bigger pockets. Like, are you in the bigger pockets camp or are you in the guru camp? Right. And that division was a really smart play on their part because pretty much anybody that is not bigger pockets is untrustworthy immediately. I don't think that it's really that black and white guys. I think that there are probably some really good uh, educators out there that have a really good, program. But the key is, is you have to, as the buyer, really do your due diligence and make sure that if you buy into something that expensive, that you're going to get an ROI on it. Yeah. Look at it like a deal, you know? I think where it gets tricky is because I've bought into super expensive coaching programs before and like, there's no question. I learned tons from it, stuff that I still apply today. But at the same time, it's a part of why I, I remember buying into one of those coaching programs was because, you know, I was told, you're going to be making 10 grand a month, no problem in the next few months. Like that is totally something you can do. I don't think the person was lying to me at all. I think they were being totally truthful, but the way that my life and business ended up going, it did not end up going down the track that I was sold on. And I did not end up making that kind of money. So it's a, I don't know. There's a lot of different facets to it. There's like, there's understanding the reliability of the coach. And there's also understanding your own personal goals of where you're going to go with that. It's not a black and white thing. And just because you don't end up adhering to your goal doesn't mean it was a failure. I mean, you can still learn amazing things from that and get all the value in the world. So I don't know. I think it's the whole jump to judgment and hating on people who charge anything for information. It's an easy thing to do because it doesn't require much thought. Whereas a lot of times there's just, there's more you have to take into consideration to really know what you're talking about when you start saying this person is bad or good <laughs> for one reason or another. Oh. Yeah, man. No, hundred percent. So I, I think I'm, I'm maturing in that area where, you know, I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I will say I had had bad experiences with close friends of mine buying into programs where we didn't get the value out of those programs early in my real estate career. And so I think that's what put a bad taste in my mouth. And I'm sure like the particular, I'm not going to name drop anybody, but the particular program that we bought into, I think the strategies that they talked about and they taught would work in places like the Midwest or maybe the South. But in San Francisco, California, (laughs) they definitely did not work. Can I throw everything and say, nope, it didn't work for me. So it's completely useless. And they're just scam artists ripping people off. I don't think I can really say that because I'm not looking at it objectively and I'm, I'm looking at the whole picture, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, okay. That was the episode from Seth Williams and Jaron Barnes from RE Tipster. And you can check them out at retipster.com. Those are uh, good friends of mine in the real estate industry who just give the real, the raw, and the truth about it. And that's why I love uh, working with them and they're good friends of mine. So I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. And if you have, then let us know. You can do that by subscribing to uh, our podcast. You could also leave us a review and you can do some stars. And also you can jump over to our YouTube and leave a comment or subscribe to our channel. And that will help us know that you've enjoyed it. All right. Talk to you real soon. See you next time on the Fearless Millionaire 
podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of the Fearless Millionaire Podcast. Like the show? Let us know by liking and sharing. Be sure to check out our website at fearless-millionaire.com for more clarity, confidence, and cash flow.